Hey there, I'm Melanie Reed, and this is the HR Mentor. Today, I am recording this from the traditional, unceded, and ancestral territories of the Tecumseh to Shequetmik people within Shequetmikulu, and I'm very honored and grateful to be a guest on this beautiful territory. Today on the show, my guest is Stephen Rothberg. Stephen is the founder and chief visionary officer of College Recruiter Job Search Site, which believes that every student and recent graduate deserves a great career. Over the course of a year, College Recruiter helps 7 million students and recent graduates find part-time, seasonal, internship, co-op, apprenticeship, and other entry-level jobs. At any given time, there are several million jobs advertised on College Recruiter globally. If you're a university or college student or a recent graduate, this conversation is for you. I recommend you take some notes and check out College Recruiter today. You can find a link to connect with Stephen and visit the job board in the helpful links section of the show notes, which you can easily find wherever you are listening. Stephen and his team also have an awesome blog with lots of advice for employers and recent graduates. In this episode, Stephen and I discuss how university and college students can maximize their success in the job market and stand out as applicants. We also discuss when and how candidates should reveal if they belong to an equity-seeking group and some recent trends in diversity recruitment that job applicants should be prepared for. Finally, Stephen shares what he's working on at College Recruiter and offers some sage advice through my speed questions. There is so much here for you to take in. So let's get started. Welcome to the HR Mentor Podcast, the podcast for emerging HR practitioners to get practical advice, tools, and strategies to build credibility, confidence, and ultimately a fulfilling HR career. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for being here on the podcast today. Uh, pleasure to be with you. Thanks, Melanie. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you because your your background and your experience are really different than most of my guests. So really excited to learn a little bit more about what you do, what your company does, and get some guidance from you for my listeners. Well, cool. It's, uh, it's my goal to either put all of them to shame or to know by the end of this interview that the shame should be directed at me. I think we'll figure that out. <laughs> yeah, that's a great goal. <laughs> <laughs> so to help sort of place our conversation, maybe you could share a little bit about what you do and what your company does. Sure. So I am the founder and chief visionary officer for College Recruiter. Uh, College Recruit is a job search site for students and recent graduates. Our customers are primarily employers, that large employers that advertise their job openings with us, part-time, seasonal, internship, and what we call entry-level jobs, so zero to three years of experience. So the best way to think about us is think Indeed, a job search site, but okay. for a college and university educated audience. So the employers pay the bills 
and the candidates use the site to find employment. And what is sort of the scope of your website in terms of which markets are you primarily in? Mm. So if we had been talking 14, 15 months ago until I think about March of 2021, then I would have said overwhelmingly U.S., um, a little bit in Canada at any given time, about a million jobs and about 3 million students and recent grads using our site a year. Uh, flash forward to today, uh, we went international last spring, a little over a year ago. So we now have about 20% of the jobs um, on our site outside of North America. The US is definitely still our biggest market, um, followed by the UK and Canada. But we have jobs in virtually every country in the world. By this fall, we'll have over 100,000 jobs advertised on our site at any given time in each of the 15 countries in the world where the majority of the people speak English. And then we'll also have jobs in Finland and France and Algeria and you know just, just about everywhere else. There are certain countries that as a US-based business, you're not allowed to do business in. Um, so that, that puts a little bit of a damper on it, but not much. You're talking a handful of countries in the world. So we have about, um, we're heading now towards about 7 million students and recent grads a year using our site to find employment. And at any given time, we have about two to two and a half million uh, job openings advertised on our site. Wow, that is phenomenal. I had no idea it was that huge. Yeah, you know, it's um, on a day to day basis, even hour to hour, we have to remind ourselves that what what we're really doing. It's not selling job postings or, you know, whether it's on a traditional duration basis, like a couple hundred dollars a month or, you know, 50 cents a click or a dollar per click. But every one of those 7 million people represents an individual person who is looking for a better life and finding a better career is absolutely critical to that for for the vast majority of people. Um, I mean, we can you know, maybe all find somebody rich to marry, and that that's gonna that's gonna help our way. Um, I don't think you can call that a career, but uh, it's a lifestyle choice, I suppose. But for most of us, finding a better career, whether we're in Indonesia or Argentina or Montana or British Columbia, that is the best path to a better life. Wow, I think that's a fantastic mission, and. I know that the people listening to this podcast are going to be particularly interested. You're going to see an uptick after <laughs> this goes live because that's exactly who my audience is, right? Is new university grads looking for that first HR job or maybe a level up to their careers. So that's fantastic. So how long have you been running College Recruiter? I founded the business out of which College Recruiter grew uh, three decades ago, okay. uh, 1991. Uh, so the first few years it was all in print. It was pre-internet. Um, it's hard to remember that, that there was such a thing. But uh, one of the things that we were doing was publishing a, a magazine called College Recruiter, and it had ads in it from employers that were looking to hire mostly new grads. And we had four different regionalized versions of it in the US, about 250 schools were distributing it. 
And then in the mid 90s, this thing called the internet came along. A career service office person literally called it that. There's this thing called the internet. I don't really know what it is, but you guys should get a website. Uh, So the first version of our site went live in, in 96. The current version of our business really was born in 2014, 2015, when we started to shift towards what's called pay for performance, which is just a different pricing model. Rather than an employer paying, say, $200 to run an ad for 30 days, they only pay the job board um, or other media, whether it's Google, Facebook, a job board, whatever, they, they typically will pay them per click. So every time a candidate sees a job on your on the job board, clicks the apply button, usually to go to the employer's site to apply, then you get you as the job board get paid for that click when the candidate goes over to the employer's site that part of our business started off somewhat accidentally in 2014 2015 but we could very quickly see the writing on the wall and just sort of and went all in on it a couple within a couple of years and what prompted your decision to start the parent the first company I was a uh, lawyer by education, and I had uh, graduated the year before and was um, working as a lawyer for a couple of judges in in Minnesota where I I continue to live. And a friend of mine that uh, I had grown up with tried to get me to basically join his small business. Uh, And he, he lived and continues to live in Winnipeg. And we tried very hard to make the whole money thing work. He didn't have the cash flow to pay me a salary. I didn't have the savings to go without a salary. Uh, So kind of one thing led to another. We're still really good friends. Actually had a nice long conversation with him yesterday. So he continued to run his business in Winnipeg and continues to do that. Uh, And in the meantime, while I was practicing, while I was working for these judges, I got this business started on the side. My, My goal when I went into law had never been to be a lawyer for the rest of my life. I had always wanted to go into law, practice for maybe five, six, seven years, get a lot of really great experience, and then get out and either start my own small business or join somebody else's. So the discussions with him accelerated all of that because it's like people talk about gold fever and i think it's the same thing with entrepreneurs well you've stayed with you've stayed with this one uh one plan for you said three decades. Yeah. So that says a lot, actually. Yeah, and I'm only 26, I, which is really weird. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I have that shiny object problem. I was just talking to a colleague about that today, about doing academic research. And I said, I don't know if I could research one thing for five years. I'd, I'd probably get bored and give up by then. Yeah, and, you know, God bless the people that can. I, I, I know people yeah. who, who do it. And they just look at my life and they're like, how do you deal with all that uncertainty and the change exactly. and the stress? And, and it's like, I, how do you deal with going to work every day and doing the same thing over and over again? I don't think right. one is right and one is wrong. I, I really yeah. think it's different strokes for different folks. And I know yeah. people who have been extremely happy in a job that doesn't have a lot of stress from the job and you, you kind of... The number of decisions that you make is is really small, 
And then five, six years later, they go and do something completely different. But it's it's a very different job. But again, where it's very low level decision making and kind of the same thing over and over again, almost like a production line um, kind of job. And there are a lot of people that are just really good at that. And they can have that level of attention to detail in an environment like that, where over and over and over and over again, they're doing the right thing. If you put me into a job like that, after about 12 minutes, I'd be like checking out the popcorn <laughs> machine. And yeah, I'm way, yeah. I'd be way too ADD to do a job like that well. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm with you. But you know, to your point, there are so many different career paths that people can take. And I have to say, that's one of the, I think the privileges of, of what I do connecting with new grads and, and staying in contact with former students of my own, and then watching kind of their paths evolves. I just find it fascinating to see, you know, how people evolve their careers. I had one one student, uh, you know, that started and was studying HR, but had an art background and now has a successful painting company, mm. you know, and, and is really thrilled with doing that. So, you know, sometimes it doesn't even matter what you study at university, you may end up doing something completely different. And I think today's employment market and and access that people have to training and professional development and even university for a lot of people is more accessible than it used to be. Yeah. They can change paths, you know, there's, there's nothing that says you have to do the same thing your whole life. And I really love that. Absolutely. And what makes sense for you, say in your early twenties might be absolutely ridiculous when you're in your thirties and maybe you come back to it when you're in your forties and maybe not. But yeah, I, I think that one of the, biggest struggles that that I hear from the audience that basically we both serve, you know, probably a lot of the the listeners to, to this podcast, is this misconception that the job that you go into, maybe even when you're in a student, when you're a student, certainly upon graduation, that that's what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. And there are people who do that. But sure. there, there are the rare exception now, and thank goodness, um, because we really should be doing work that we, that we care about, that we're good at, that we value, and that changes during your life. Like what I, I'm 56. What I care about at the age of 56 is really different than what I cared about at the age of 26. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's great advice. And um, I certainly stress that with not only students, but people that I work with um, through my consulting company is just that nothing's forever. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know, you can make a decision, you can follow a path. And I and I encourage, you know, job seekers to be focused on a particular path that is aligned with their values and and their strengths, but, but that it doesn't have to be there forever and ever path. Make it aligned, go for it. And if you change your mind, hey, that's okay. (laughs) At any point, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think we've all learned that the word pivot is, uh, even if we're tired of it, actually is a real thing that people do these days. (laughs) Yeah. And don't be afraid of accidents. Uh, I I defy 
any 40, 50, 60 year old to look back on their career and say every job change, every promotion, every lateral move, every layoff, all of that was planned. BS. Yeah. It, life, life is full of accidents, some of them happy, some of them not so much. Um, but I think when we look back at our lives and look at all the forks in the road, it's they're just too many to count. And you can't, you can set yourself up for success. That doesn't guarantee you success. Um, but it's a heck of a lot easier to set yourself up for failure. And I think a great way of doing that is putting your blinders on and just sort of refusing to acknowledge the changing realities around you. Mm, I like that. Yeah, that's great advice. So let's talk a little bit about uh, this audience. Sure. <laughs> Individuals may be looking for their first professional role. Uh, I'm sure you engage with a lot of job candidates and you talk to a lot of employers. Mm -hmm. What kind of mistakes do you generally see new grads making when they're looking for their first professional role? Well, let me take your question and back it up a little bit, if I may. I think the biggest okay. mistake is that is that they if they are new grads when they're looking for their first professional role that's that's a big mistake they should be a currently mm -hmm. enrolled student they should be getting an, an internship before they graduate at least one and the goal of that internship should be permanent employment upon graduation and i say permanent mm -hmm. with big double air quotes around it because um, like you said, sort of like nothing, nothing in life is, is forever, uh, right. other than perhaps the Leaf Stanley Cup drought. As a former Winnipegger, that gives me nothing but joy. But that's another topic <laughs> for another podcast. The, yeah. uh, and if you can get me booked onto that one, then find the finder's <laughs> fees all yours. I'll work on it. Thank you. Thank you. You get right to work. Oh, that's good. Uh, the, you know, if you... If you're in, say, a bachelor's program, and you know, typical person's going to do that for, say, four years. In the U.S., the th we call them juniors, uh, people who were in their third year. Um, I had a couple kids that went to McGill, and I I went to uh, university in Canada, so I know that whole freshman, sophomore, junior, senior thing really isn't at all a Canadian thing. It's a very yeah. American thing. But basically, when you're in your third year in a four-year program, uh, and You've got that maybe ability to work part-time during the school year. Maybe you've got the ability to work full-time during the summer be between your third and fourth year. That's an absolutely optimal time to find an internship or something that's career-related. You might find an employer that is looking to hire an accounting student to for three months for a project and you're in accounting and you want to go to work for a firm like that upon graduation that accounting firm for some reason might not be willing to call it a internship but right. who cares it doesn't really matter what they call it what really matters to you as the student are a couple things. One is you're getting career-related experience, and I'll circle back to that in a second. The other thing is you've just created a temp-to-perm relationship. That employer and you can temporarily try each other out. If you like them and they like you, 
then in all likelihood that relationship is going to become permanent. You're going to go to work for them upon graduation. And that's a wonderful thing because you like them and they like you. So what more could you ask for? The circling back part, the experience part, one of the biggest misconceptions that a lot of students have and even recent grads is that they think that employers are primarily hiring based upon what university you went to or mm -hmm. even what your grades were in your particular school in your in your major there are employers that are only willing to consider students from certain schools uh, those employers are losing the the, the war for talent or they're yeah. not hiring the people they need to and those employers long term will end up in the dustbin of history there more and more employers are understanding that there are great candidates at every school and there are terrible candidates at every school it's much yes. more about the candidate it's much more about the experience that you have if you're a hiring manager putting yourself on the other side of the desk and you're looking across at that stereotypical 21 22 year old what you want to see in their eyes, in their work experience, is that they are going to be the least likely to embarrass you. They are the lowest <laughs> risk candidate. So if you yeah. advertise for a job and you get 20 applications, probably 10 of them are total crap and you don't even spend more than a few seconds getting rid of them. The other 10, probably five of them are good enough that you kind of look at them and you think about them, and then you say to yourself, yeah, these are total crap too. Uh, and, and for right. one reason or another. But there's enough there that you sort of pause. You're probably left with five. Two of them don't respond to your emails or phone calls. And so now you're left with three. And you bring all three of those people in for an interview. They probably meet with one or two people, go through a couple of rounds. So. What you as the candidate need to do is to convince the hiring manager, who's probably going to be your future boss, that not that you're the rock star and, the, you know, you know, it's not like you're John Lennon and the other two are Ringo and George, but you just have to convince them that, that the other two are riskier hires than you. And that doesn't mean bringing down the others. You probably don't even know who they are. But if you right. can show your future boss, I've done this work before. Paid, unpaid, doesn't matter. But I have a track record of success doing the kind of work you want me to do. There's a really, really good chance that you're going to be the one to get that job. So don't worry too much whether you got paid or not paid. Don't worry too much about whether you did that work for a big firm, a small firm, a firm in Eastern Canada, a firm in Western Canada. Did you do the work? Very few employers hire people to take tests. So the fact that your right. buddy got an A and you got a B, who cares? If your buddy got an yeah. A because he wasn't working all the way through school and could spend a lot more time studying and you got a B because you were working 20 hours a week and you got great experience, I'll take you all day long. I think that's really good advice. I. 
I'm just going to touch on a couple of things here that you said, because there was a lot in there. <laughs> um, because one of the things that, you know, um, well, even my own daughter asked me because she's starting university next year. And we've, we've had these conversations about, does the school you go to really matter? Mm. And I did both my degrees at the university that I teach at. Mm -hmm. And never, even when I didn't live here and I lived in Vancouver and I was applying for my first HR job there, no one ever said, well, we're not considering you because of the university you went to. (laughs) And, And no one really ever asked me about my grades, even though I had a good GPA. But nobody asked me about that. But they were very interested in my volunteer experience, my work experience, the projects I did, um, all of those sorts of things were much more important to them. Yeah. And and probably the volunteer experience, it wasn't because they wanted to see if you were a nice, caring, tree-hugging person. It's like, what they're trying to do is fill a picture out in their mind. It's like, okay, Hmm. If she's volunteered and she's done payroll for a nonprofit for a few hours a week, she's going to know how to do payroll for our business. And yeah. we, you know, we there are certainly going to be things that we're going to have to teach her, and it might be more complicated. But she's got a demonstrated history of doing that work, and that's yeah. really what's the most important. And boy, then if you can translate into doing it that same work for that same employer for the same boss, i.e. an internship, how much lower risk can you be? Yeah, exactly. Now, one thing that I think students struggle with a little bit in our Canadian system is we don't have a lot of internship, Mm -hmm. paid or unpaid. Uh, What we do have is a strong co-op model um, through the universities. And I really encourage students to get involved with co-op. Even our post-bac programs now, which are two-year post-bac diplomas at our university, offer a co-op option so you can get one or two work terms in. And I think that if there's any students listening to that and you haven't reached out to your co-op office, I definitely encourage you to do that. Because sometimes they even have co-op jobs at the university, um, or they can connect you with volunteer work experience. I have a former student who, in her final year, uh, was working with the career education office and helping other students prep for job interviews. And she's an HR student, so it's a perfect fit, right? So she knows a lot about interviews. She knows what questions employers are going to ask. It's no mystery that she's now landed a permanent full-time job when she just graduated (laughs) because she had that experience. And it it wasn't like it was a full-time or even a part-time job that she had. I agree 100% what they should do is is immediately like hit pause on their earbuds or on their iPhones and go to their co-op office, student employment office, career service office, whatever your school calls it. And whether it's a co-op, whether it's an internship in Europe, um, apprenticeships are popular. They're starting to come over to North America. Or if it's just part-time or a full-time temporary job you know you can go down the street to a staffing company and find a job that is career related don't get hung up too much on whether it's a co-op or an internship or something like that if you can find one great 
it is easier to explain that to a prospective employer. The employer's expectations for a co-op and intern is that it's a temporary role by definition. And so at the end of it, if you don't like them, you can walk away with no hard feelings. If they don't like you, they can walk away with no hard feelings. But in the meantime, you've just got great work experience that's going to translate very well into a permanent job. So what I see in the U.S. is way too much emphasis on students feeling that they have to graduate with a job that's called an internship. And some of the schools, and I know this is the case with some of the schools in Canada, I hope it's not a trend because it's yet another thing about the U.S. I really don't like. Um, but the there are a number of schools uh, in the U.S. that's a sizable minority that literally charge students a fee for having an internship. You know, yeah. have, is $60,000 in tuition not enough for you? And now you right. also have to start charging the money for a job that maybe they're not going to get paid for. So students who come with very little money, uh, perhaps they're from a a lower socioeconomic group, even if they have wealthy parents, but the parents aren't providing them with any money for education, which, hey, if the parents want to retire, that can happen. It's a real struggle then for those students to be faced with with the choice of, do I graduate with an internship? that I can't afford to take because my school's gonna charge me for the credits? Or do I just say, you know, screw it, I guess I can't afford to have an internship, so I'm just gonna spend more time studying. That's a false choice. There's a third choice Mm -hmm. there. And the third choice is you can get an internship or any other job, not pay your school for it, and just don't get the credit for it. You know, a lot of students graduate right. with way more credits than they need anyway. And if you if your credits don't happen to be for some internship, co-op position, whatever, fine. Uh, don't you know? You shouldn't feel compelled for your school to qualify that experience as an official co-op or internship. If they will and not charge you for a fee, or even if they charge you a fee and you can afford it awesome. But if the choice is having experience before you graduate or graduating without experience, boy, don't even think twice about that. Get the experience. Yeah. I I think it is similar here in that you do pay a co-op fee. Um, you do take certain courses related to your co-op, right? And then you get access to those jobs that are advertised through the co-op office. Mm -hmm. So I think it probably is a similar system, but you're right. Not everybody can afford that. And I do know, especially for a lot of our international students that are paying three times the tuition, they also can't afford to extend their time here by another year or year and a half (laughs) to finish a co-op, right? And to get the co-op credential. I guess what I'm hearing you saying is that if that's a barrier, don't let it stop you. Right. Go out and create your own internship, your own co-op. And and I think with the job market the way it is 
students shouldn't have trouble doing that. One of the things I find, we're in sort of a smaller city, and I find that there aren't, at least for HR students, there aren't as many job opportunities that are specific in HR departments. Mm -hmm. There aren't a ton of large employers. But I encourage those students to look elsewhere um, and to talk to potential employers about support with accommodation because it's hard to find great people and your scenario about the employer getting whittled down to three candidates sometimes it's one yeah um you know and and sometimes that one person doesn't take it right because somebody else is offering them more so i think right now there definitely is a lot of opportunities for a student who's you know, puts in the effort and the time to figure out their own kind of internship or co-op. 100%. And and what's also really changed over the last couple of years uh, is the rapid growth in remote work. So in 2019, if you were in an HR major in a school in Kamloops and there was a company in Halifax that was looking for somebody in HR, even for three months... You know, maybe somebody's out on on paternity leave and they need somebody for a few months. What a perfect role. But are you going to go all the way across the country for that role for a few months? Well, you know, maybe if you grew up in Nova Scotia, yeah, yeah, that would be an awesome fit, right? But if you grew up in Vancouver and you're going to school in Kamloops, it's really unlikely that you're going to like get in the car and drive for the next three and a half weeks um, to get across the country. (laughs) And I've never done... Especially with the price of fuel. Right. I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, if you're you're Elon Musk, you can probably afford it, but uh, the rest of us uh, probably can't. Uh, And it's not like the whole drive is downhill. It's, you know, once once you get to the top of the Rockies, it's pretty much downhill until you get to Toronto, but it's, uh, but you're still not going to be coasting that whole way. The, No. uh, no, but in all seriousness, the... The willingness in 2022 for employers to hire people remotely is absolutely night and day compared to what it was in 2019. In 2019, employers would have said, you have to be in the office. Why? Well, because you have to be. Well, why? Right. Uh, Because that's how we get our work done. Why? And and it, it would be very much like beating your head against a brick wall. Uh, it would only feel good when you stop. The reality in today's labor market is that probably most employers would strongly prefer for you to be in the office because most employers are populated by a whole lot of terrible managers who need to be looking over your shoulder in order to manage you properly but also have come to accept the fact that they're probably not going to be able to hire the people they need if they insist on everybody being in the office. Even the companies that officially have a back-to-office policy or an in-person policy, even those employers, when you really dig into it, it's really not true. There are a whole lot of exceptions being made because they know that if, you know, Mackenzie's just been awesome for us and she says, sorry, during COVID, I moved to Lisbon and I would love to continue to work for you, but I'm not moving back to Toronto. Guess who gets to telecommute? It's going to be Mackenzie in Lisbon because uh, they, they're not yeah. going to be able to replace her. 
and uh, or they will replace her, but the person is going to be, you know, nowhere near as good. And how does that help the employer? The the employers that would insist that you as a student in BC are going to have to go across the country for a three month internship are are fewer and fewer. And and I think that's a really good thing. Well, I'm a student, yeah. and let's say I'm really keen on this job. It ticks all the boxes, it lines up value strengths, but I can't be in that location. Do you recommend that I approach an employer, set up an informational interview and ask the question before I apply about the ability to work remotely? Yeah. Or do you recommend I go through the process, hope I get selected for an interview and then ask that? Oh, I would definitely do the former. I, I, I think the okay. likelihood of even if you win that second scenario, even if they say, well, okay, we'll hire you remotely, I think you lose because right from the beginning, you're going to build in their mind the perception that you're not somebody they can trust. That is, mm. is she ever going to be somebody who's going to be candid and forthright with us? If she wouldn't even tell yeah. us the truth before starting work working with us, what's she going to be like when something difficult happens, uh, what's she going to be like if, if you know, maybe she runs into a health issue that she doesn't want to tell us about, and then she's going to be, you know, coming into the office and making us all sick, you know, whatever the issue might be, trust is really important. But so what I would do in a scenario like that, if you're able to, is point to your success in working remotely. I think probably most mm-hmm. of the students that you're talking to most of the students who are using our site. I'm talking currently enrolled students. Uh, unfortunately, right. they all have a lot of experience working remotely. They do. Right? And yeah. I mean, like going to university on Zoom was a pretty terrible experience for almost all of them. The fact that they made it yeah. through is a huge accomplishment. The fact that, and, and you know, if they somehow had good grades and got good experience, what more could an employer ask for? So be real upfront and say, you know, this is a great job for this reason, this reason, this reason, and this reason. Um, I see that you need this person to be in person. I respect that. I understand your desire for that. However, uh, I have a demonstrated ability of working very well remotely. And here's how. I did this. I did that. I did this. I did that successfully remotely would it make sense to set up a phone call next tuesday afternoon or wednesday morning and you're gonna get some rejections their loss for sure their loss you know and and if you apply to five or ten jobs which is about the number you should you'll probably lose a couple like that and you'll probably get a couple that you might not have been expecting and so hey that's fine I think the other thing, too, is setting up an informational interview or a a conversation about it also gives them a chance to to meet you Mm -hmm. virtually and to have a conversation. And that can be a demonstration of your ability to connect with them um, outside of being face to face, Mm -hmm. if that's how you set it up. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think it does, you were talking earlier about, you know, the employer is going to take the least 
risky candidate. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I talk to um, job applicants about all the time, make it easy for them to say yes to you. And if they already know you even a little bit, Mm -hmm. you're now a no person to them. So it makes it easier for them to put you in the yes pile when they see your application, because all these other applicants, they don't know anything about other than what's on paper. And now they've spoken to you on the phone, even if they were a little bit you know, iffy on the remote piece and they said, but apply anyway, who knows what could happen in the end, right? right? Because now you've made an impression on them. Yeah, and and 100% agree. And and just to build on that a little bit, Melanie, uh, look look for affinities. Uh, so, you know, right. if the person that you're applying to, uh, let's say it's a, it's, it's okay, so it's, it's, it's an HR person, it's a company of 500 people, you're applying, and they've got, you know, three HR people, there's a director of HR, there's an HR manager, there's a recruiter, you know, in the company, something typical like right. that. Um, you know, the, the recruiter might be the person who you're going to talk to initially, you're the hiring manager, the person you report to is probably going to either be that HR manager or that HR director. Both of them, all three of them are going to be involved in the hiring decision without a doubt in right. a department of that size. So, you know, you've gone to XYZ school, you grew up in ABC city and you like to play Frisbee golf, right? Take a look at those yep. people do a little bit of sleuthing. Don't just confine yourself to LinkedIn where you're likely going to see only their professional experience, but Google the heck out of them. And you might find that the HR director didn't go to the same school as you did, but maybe she grew up in a town that's 30 minutes away from where you grew up. So there's not a perfect right. match, but there's some good affinity there. Hey, you remember that French fry place down the block? Oh, yeah, I used to work there. Yeah. And, you know, maybe her daughter plays Frisbee golf. And so you've got a connection there. Again, you're just you're making right. yourself a real person. So many bad things came out of COVID. But one of the really good things that came out of COVID is it caused us all to remember that we're all people. And yeah. I mean, how many phone calls, Zoom calls did we have where a cat would walk across somebody's keyboard or some somebody's <laughs> like three-year-old was like screaming in the background and you're sure that they were going to set off like fireworks and, and the person's just trying to hold it together for their 30-minute staff meeting. And... <laughs> You know, initially, I think it made some people really uptight. It's like, oh, I I feel uncomfortable to know that you have a bed in your home. Uh, It's like, well, you know, if that makes you uncomfortable, you've got issues. Uh, because I, I've always had a bed in my home. Actually, uh, you know, I don't really yeah. think there's anything terribly wrong with having a bed in my, in your home. But if you do, maybe you're not the yeah. place I want to work for. But it it really humanizes, and I think the more that people, like you said, the more that your future boss can feel comfortable with you, they can picture working with you in a day to day, hour to hour basis that makes you a lower risk person. You know, who wants to work with somebody who just annoys the heck out of them, that you're just oil and water? Yeah, life's too short for that. Absolutely. No, that's great advice. Affinity. I like it. Now, let's say a candidate goes the other route. They don't have an informational interview. There's a position that they feel like they're a really good match with. 
what can they do to improve their chances that their application will get noticed, especially if they're applying through a job board? Yeah. So, so these are clearly people who don't listen to your podcast because they didn't set up the informational <laughs> interview. So I don't think we have to care about them. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> you know, it, despite the best efforts of a candidate, there are definitely going to be loads of employers that will just decline uh, the opportunity to have an informational interview. Their loss, but... I get it. Uh, if they said yes to every one of those requests, they would spend a lot of time in those requests is the reasoning. Uh, and my response back to that is, isn't that your job as a recruiter to right. be doing that or as a hiring manager? <laughs> and then you complain about how there are no good people out there. And, and so it, it becomes pretty circular pretty fast. But Let's give them the fact that there's no informational interview. Right okay. from the get-go, one of the things that the vast majority of candidates miss, and so it's a huge, easy, low-hanging fruit, throw another couple cliches in there, opportunity, and that is when you're applying to the job, you see it on College Recruiter, you see it on Indeed, you see it on LinkedIn, wherever you see it, your, your university's career service office website, look at the keywords that the employer is using in their job posting ad. And uh, okay. for example, if they post an ad and it's for uh, an HR representative and all the way through the ad, HR, 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 and they never spell out human resources, then when you apply, uh -huh. make sure that at least once you use HR because when they use certain types of software or when they're keyword searching the resumes that come in, they are likely going to be looking for people that have quote unquote HR experience. And if the software is not right. smart and most software is dumb, then human resources is not the same as HR. It's mind-boggling to me. I mean, we're we're certainly not an Indeed or LinkedIn in terms of size, but our search software understands synonyms and acronyms, and so our software would understand okay. HR is the same as human resources. But there are loads of examples out there, RN instead of registered nurse, things like that. So look for the keywords that they're using. It can even be things like location. Um, if they're an employer in Winnipeg, they might say something about the fact that they're looking for somebody who grew up on the prairies. Get that word prairies into your job application if, if in fact that's the case or if you have some relationship there. Uh, if they're in Prince Edward Island, right, they might talk about the you know, the Atlantic provinces or the Maritimes, right. right? Get words like that into your job application because then your application is going to be more likely to surface right from the get-go. Um, when you are selected for what's usually an introductory or a phone interview, something usually kind of short, it's a screening interview, be prepared. Um, uh, one, one thing about being prepared that, that I kind of laugh at because I know if it was me being contacted for an interview, I would fail this every time. And that is not very many of us answer phone calls from numbers that we don't recognize. 
Okay. Exactly. When was the last yeah. time you put into your phone's contact records the direct dials of everybody who worked for the company that you're applying to? You don't know them, right? And so you can't possibly yeah. do that. So when you are in that job application period in your life, and this won't be the last time, you'll go through this a bunch of times again, make a habit of answering those calls. And if you just mm -hmm. can't because you're in a, a noisy environment or you're out for dinner and it would just be like really rude for you to take the call, make sure that your outgoing message is professional. You know, hi, right. it's Melanie. Sorry, I'm not able to take your call right now. Please leave your name and number and I'll return your call. And here's a great thing to do within one business day and then do right. it. That demonstrates right from the beginning to the recruiter, the hiring manager, that you're that you're able and willing to make commitments, and then you follow through on them. So even before you had a real conversation with them, if you return the call within a period of time like that, that's going to be really impressive to them. It's like, wow, without even knowing me, it was just a message. She said she returned within a day, and she did. She's kind of impressive. If I give her a task yeah. to do at work, She's pretty likely to take that task and say, okay, Stephen, um, you know what? I can, I, I'll have this done by Friday. I'm going to know she's going to have it done by Friday. She's a low-risk candidate. Right. When you do have that initial interview, the 10-minute interview, for God's sake, listen. Listen to what they're asking. What they're usually asking in those early interviews is they want proof that you're not just a total bozo, that you are right. worth the time to actually have a full interview, perhaps with their boss. If you can't talk your way out of a wet paper bag, if you don't know what their company does, if you don't know who their, what their major products are, who their major customers are, there's a decent chance you're going to fail that screening interview. So be prepared. You know, there's the, there is a site called Google. Use it. And, you know, <laughs> go over to their Wikipedia page, go over to their company page. It's going to take maybe 15 minutes to familiarize yourself. Is, if you apply to 200 yeah, jobs, you don't have time to do that. If you apply to five to 10, you have time to do that. And yeah, you can I mean, the um, preparation is key, but you don't need to prepare for hours. We're talking minutes. Uh, when we're hiring people at College Recruiter, and, and I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret, so don't tell anyone. The first question that we ask is, what is it about the job that caused you to apply? It is amazing how many people don't know. They don't yeah. remember applying to the job. They don't know what we do. And many of them don't even know what the job is. They just get an email saying, hey, are you available Thursday at 4 o'clock? And they say, hey, great job interview. Yes. And then they show up at 4 o'clock and they have no idea what the job is, what the company is. If they had spent 15 minutes on our site, they probably would get a job offer. But that lack of willingness to spend even 15 minutes, they get they get nixed right away. And and literally, we'll we'll have a 15-minute phone interview scheduled for 15 minutes, and and I've been around. I don't do any of the interviewing, thank goodness for everybody involved, but Literally, I've heard people on RN say, yeah, you know what? Um, thank you very much for your time. I don't really think it's a good fit. Um, have a good day. And they'll do that after five minutes.
because it's just a waste of the candidate's time and it's a waste of our person's time to spend even that additional 10 minutes. If they don't even know who we're, who they're talking to, that's not the kind of person that we want to hire. I totally agree. I My favorite first question for a pre-screening interview has always been, what was your motivation for applying to this position? Yeah, so it's basically the same. Very, very, very yeah, similar wording. That, that's what I want to know. So uh, that's great advice. And hopefully those of you listening are already doing that. But if you're not, uh, shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you don't, you don't have to make something up like, you know, oh, you know, I've always, you know, dreamt of working for a company that, that right. makes like, you know, you know, widgets or, you know, rotors or, you know, whatever, you know, oh, I yeah. saw that your CEO is 187 years old and looks like a guy from like, like a, the, the crypt series. You no, know, you don't, you don't have to lie about that stuff, but you should know you know, hey, my uncle worked for a manufacturing company about your size. Um, I'm really interested in moving to, you know, Hamilton because my fiance's got a job there and I'm going to be there in a couple of weeks. So I'd love to have a chance to kind of, you know, meet you a little bit here. And if this is good, you know, let's set up a time to meet when I'm in when I'm in Hamilton. Now, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, uh, I noticed on your website, you do have some great blog articles mm. on there. And one of the ones that I read was um, a list of ways for employers to hire more diverse applicants, mm -hmm. which I, I've spent a lot of the last two years working on, on EDI projects within our school and uh, have a passion for it. So one of the things that you listed as an idea is conducting screening interviews by text yeah. to try and keep the process blind as long as possible. And I think that's a great idea. Uh, my daughter recently got a second job and that was how her first sort of screening process went was through text messages with the owner. Cool. And then they did a FaceTime interview cool. and then she was hired. Yeah. <laughs> What advice would you have for candidates who might be interviewed by text message? And and again, to those of you listening, be prepared for that because that's not something I would have thought of previous. Yeah. Days. So one of the reasons for texting back and forth with a candidate in, in an interview environment is that it allows the employer, the person on the other end, to not know things like your race your age, your gender. So at in some companies, the person who will do the screening, typically a recruiter or somebody relatively low down the food chain, they may be able to see just from the name you put on your resume that you're female, that you're male. They may be able to infer from things on your resume what your race is, religion, your ethnic you know, or background, etc. At companies that are better about their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, what, what a, a rapidly increasing minority of them are doing, so not most, but it's also growing fast, and I love it, is that that initial person, their job really is, you know, does Melanie seem to have the basic qualifications? Is the, is a, it's not, right. do we want to hire Melanie? 
question is, is it worth half an hour of somebody else's time to interview Melanie? That's the threshold that your resume has to get you past. Right. So once you've got that past that, then at those companies, very often they will remove all references that might identify your age, race, gender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the person who's right. now interviewing you is quite blind about all of those characteristics. And they'll literally just right. provided with your cell phone number and they'll text you and you can kind of go back and forth. So when you're texting with that person, you also are pretty blind about who you're interviewing with. You don't know if that person is two years older than you and therefore quite appreciative of acronyms and, and text slang, or whether that person right. is 60 years old and using a flip phone uh, to text you. So it's, you, it's, it's normally gonna be better in, in a, let's call it a more traditional company, not like some really young startup populated by everybody being 24 and under. But in, a, in most businesses, right. the person who's interviewing you is probably gonna be in their 30s, 40s, 50s. Uh, at that first kind of texting interview, spell out the words. Okay. Um, don't don't yeah. use emojis um, with most of those companies. Now that said, if you're going to be going to work, um, let's say you're going to be applying to work in uh, an HR generalist capacity for a fast food restaurant company and you're gonna be in the district office and that district has 12 restaurants. Probably the average age is gonna be 26, 27. And if you start to text really formally, they're probably gonna be wondering if they're texting with their grandmother. I wouldn't say to the person that you're texting with, you know, how old are you? Are you comfortable? You know, you know, right. can I, you know, and, and then put some kind of like cat happy face in there. But you could certainly ask, you know, happy to text and, and just say, you know, happy to text with you more formally. But, you know, if you if you want to use acronyms and emojis, I'm comfortable with that. So, you know open the door, allow right. for it to be their choice. And then they can say, they can come back to you using a bunch of acronyms and shortened words, you know, you know, thank you. I, I hate texting formally. It's so unnatural. And then you can just, you know, be a 22 year old to a 26 year old and converse naturally. I would not ask if you can do that. What I would do is I would offer to do that. Right. If you were texting with someone like me, um, you know, and I was around when Abraham Lincoln was president, I would actually be very comfortable texting with emojis, with GIFs, acronyms, whatever. I probably, I know I wouldn't understand all of them, but I would know most of them. And the, the reason is, is I've got three kids that are in their 20s. So I text with them and they text with me that way. Now that said, they definitely text with their friends differently than they text with me. Thank goodness. They shouldn't be texting with their tick sure. friends like they're texting with their dad. Um, but, right. but you shouldn't make that assumption with, with other people. The, the beauty right. of, of an employer being blind as to your age, race, gender, et cetera, 
is that they're going to be really focused on your skills, your hard skills, your like, Mm -hmm. you know, can you read a balance sheet? Yeah, if you're an accounting major and, you know, your soft skills, you know, do you do you get along well with your coworkers? I mean, they're just like all sorts of them. Uh, But what a lot of those companies will then do is that they're going to then give preference to candidates that add diversity. And we can talk about that later, Melanie, but it's not to say the texting piece, if you are diverse, it does not mean that you've run into an organization that does not value diversity. I think I just threw a triple negative at you. If you do run into an organization that texts like that, the opposite is probably true, is that they value diversity. And if you value diversity, you should be getting pretty excited about the fact that they're that they're interviewing you that way. I agree. And I, you know, it's interesting, I talk about that in my staffing and planning class. And we talk a lot about blind screening. As as I said, I'd never considered how texting could be one of the ways to address that uh, diversity yeah. challenge, right? And 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 um, soft some of the software will remove people's names and um, street right. addresses, postal codes, that type of thing. Because there are certainly neighborhoods in almost any city of decent size that that neighborhood is predominantly black or predominantly Catholic, you know, or you know. Pick some right. other group that you want. So if you have your street address and postal code on your resume, uh, that would be another thing. Right. There's no reason for that. There's no. There's just right. absolutely no reason for an employer to have that on your resume. They'll need that for you once you're hired because they, they're going to need to mail you stuff. It needs to go into their payroll system. There are legal reasons why they're going to have to have that. But just to decide whether to talk to you or not, it's enough let they know that you're in Kamloops. That's a really good point. So I, I just want to stay on the diversity topic for a moment because I this is a question that comes up a sure. lot. So if I'm a diverse applicant, mm. how and when do you recommend I make my diversity status known? Mm. So one of the things that's happening a lot, especially in British Columbia, it's certainly happening in educational institutions is that, you know, more and more employers are giving preference to diverse applicants mm-hmm. if it's in alignment with their, you know, EDI strategy or, um, for example, we were recently looking to hire an Indigenous faculty mm-hmm. member. Obviously, we're we're explicitly stating mm-hmm. that and, and it's for diversity mm-hmm. reasons. How and when do you think it's a good idea for candidates to express that if the employer has not explicitly asked for that in their job posting, but maybe they've talked about being a diverse employer through their website or, you know, maybe having a general statement on a job? Yeah. I think there's risks. There there, there are risks and that's okay. And, And maybe this is the entrepreneur in me speaking, but I... I've always found it easy to take calculated risks. So you don't, you know, when you're crossing an intersection, you wait till the light is green and then you cross the intersection. There's still the risk that a car is going to run a red light going the other way, but you still cross the intersection. Now, one way of minimizing the risk is to wait for the light to turn green. That's a pretty good indicator that it's going to be safe. 
Another way is look both ways. You don't see any cars. Again, that, that, but it doesn't mean that you eliminate risk. What you're trying to do is reduce the risk. And sometimes okay. taking on a little bit of risk where there's a huge amount of upside is a really good thing. Other times taking on a right. little bit of risk where there's almost no upside, that's a foolish thing. So the example that you gave where the job ad does not explicitly say, you know, we're looking for this particular kind of diversity, like the indigenous professor example is a great one. Then, you know, if, if the job ad explicitly says that, you bet your life you want to say that that's you, if, if right. in fact that is you, totally. right? Um, on the other hand, that's not the typical job ad. The typical job ad is not going to really talk about diversity at all, other than maybe some generic language about, you know, we believe in a diverse and productive workforce, you know, some kind of language like that, that may or may not be true. Um, maybe near the bottom, right. there might be something about uh, we value diversity. That's usually a better indicator that the organization actually cares about that, but not always. A lot of times that language is there because... One employment branding person in the company thought that it was a really good idea, and that's something that the organization aspires to, but the reality is from a day-to-day -day basis, they're a bunch of bigots. So sometimes by highlighting your diversity, you are costing yourself the job. In this kind of labor market, I would say good. Why would you want to go to right. work for that kind of organization when the likelihood of you being able to work for a good organization is really strong? In a really tough labor market, which we're not in, that, you know, the reason why you might want to go work for an organization like that is to put food on the table. And then you look for your first opportunity out. Uh, so Absolutely. let's let's assume that it's the scenario you're talking about. They've put some language into their posting or or it's on their website, maybe even both. I would in my resume and cover letters are becoming more of a thing of the past. Some you still sometimes see them requested. That's certainly a good place to highlight um, some of those diversity issues. But in your in your resume CV, you can have an objective statement. You can work language in to various groups that you may have volunteered for or done work for. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you are a black female going through an HR program, you may have belonged to a black students association, right? Put that in there. Mm. Put that in your resume. I guarantee at some point you are going to apply to a job and the person who gets your resume will find a very good reason, a not, a not a true reason, but a very good reason to not advance you because they'll see that you're black and they don't like black people. And that person and that organization will hopefully fail. In the meantime, right. for every one of those people, you're going to encounter a lot more people who will look around their office and see a whole lot of white dudes and not very many women and not very many people of color. And they're going to say, they're going to know that all the studies show that the more diverse a workplace is, the more productive that workplace is. 
And when they look around their workplace, they see no diversity whatsoever. And so they have a genuine interest in diversifying their workforce. It's not that you as that black female have better HR skills than, you know, the white blonde woman who's sitting next to you, but you bring a different perspective simply because you're female. Uh, Well, I think I said white blonde female, but you know, let's say it's a blonde male. Um, the, you're going to bring a different perspective. You're going to have had different challenges in life. You're going to bring a different way of looking at issues, problems, solutions in that office. And that's part of what they're hiring for you for. It's kind of hard to put that down in a bullet point, you know, when you're talking about requirements, but if you diversify your office, you, you, you really improve your productivity. And it's, it's amazing to me how in just a couple of years, since George Floyd was killed just miles away from where I live, how organizations have really internalized that diversity is no longer a compliance issue. It's a productivity issue. And when you talk to corporations about productivity, they're all in. When you talk to them about compliance, they're resistant. Well, and I think too, another thing that I certainly see shifting locally and well, even across Canada is just that people are recognizing that it's also the right thing Mm -hmm. to do to, you know, to create greater opportunities for people that haven't had them in Mm -hmm. the past. And you know, for no fault of their own, other than a personal characteristic. And I and I think employers are recognizing that we all have a role to play in correcting that imbalance that we've had. And one of the things we talk about a lot um, in my classes, and I've talked about on the podcast is the difference between equality and equity. And equity doesn't mean treating people the same. And, you know, you see these arguments and debates with people on Twitter. And I've had personal people in my own network that I've had these conversations with that they think if you do something for one group, then why don't you do it for the other group? Well, that's not creating equity. (laughs) Um, Sometimes you have to give people more opportunities and more advantages to correct the ones they haven't had for, you know, and and I think that's an important conversation that we need to keep happening. And and I think, you know, job candidates for for those of you listening, you know, Stephen's advice about do you want to work for that employer? I was faced with a personal challenge when I found out I was pregnant with my son. I was in the second stage of of the uh, selection process for a job I really mm. wanted. And I, I had the opportunity to not tell them um, until they'd hired me that I was pregnant. And I, I went home and I thought about it. And A, it didn't match with my values to not mm-hmm. tell them. But B, I was like, well, if they don't hire me because of that, this is not an HR department I want anything mm. to do with. And so, you know, I, I went out for lunch with the recruiter and uh, told her and her first words were, oh, my God, congratulations. And I was like, OK, <laughs> <laughs> these are the right people, you know, and and I had a, you know, a wonderful four and a half years with them. So I, I think it can be risky. I think it's a calculated risk. I think you have to you know, know the company and research the company first to find out, is this a company you want to work with in the first place, right? And that goes back to that being prepared and only applying to five to 10, not 200 
organizations, you don't know what they are. And yeah, it's all kind of roped in with yeah. that. Just again, being mindful of your time. I have sure. one last question for you. And then um, if you'll indulge me with some more personal speed questions, that would be great. What are you working on right now at College Recruiter? Yeah. So you've, you've talked about the last three decades. So where where are you headed with the job board and what's new and exciting that listeners should be checking out? So for, for, for those of your students who have taken um, like recruitment marketing classes uh, where they're learning, you know, about job postings, display ads, the difference between duration-based pricing and performance-based pricing like pay-per-click. They'll probably uh, appreciate this. Um, for those who are just really um, math nerds, um, they'll probably also appreciate it. So, <laughs> you know, at the beginning of our interview, when I was telling you sort of like, you know, this is who I am and my job title, part of that was was chief visionary officer. So it's it's my job within the organization to have my head up, to be looking across our industry, other industries around the world, to be trying to identify threats and opportunities and where we can play to our strengths and minimize our weaknesses. So one of the things that I've really seen happening over the last couple of decades is on in the consumer marketing world where organizations are advertising their products, their services, their educational opportunities, is that performance-based pricing like pay-per-click um, is, is almost completely taken over. So if you go and buy an ad on Google or Facebook, which overwhelmingly sell the most advertising in the world, those, those two organizations, they, they sell the overwhelming amount of consumer ads uh, in the world, and then those ads appear all wow. over the place. The vast majority of that is pay-per-click um, or pay-per-lead in the employment world, that would be like paper application. So it's way, way, way more common in the recruitment space in the United States for companies that are advertising employment ads to do so on a pay-per-click basis. It's rapidly becoming okay. the, the most common way that employment advertising is done in the US. Canada is a couple of years behind and will catch up. It's just the way that the trend lines go. And the UK is probably another couple of years behind that. The rest of the world has hardly heard of it. So. What we're doing at College Recruiter is that we are helping to bring that to the world. And I don't want to come across as sounding arrogant or pie in the sky because the way that we're doing it is pretty low risk and pretty manageable. We're looking for partners in other areas of the world that their business models align with ours. So for example, we might partner with a job board in Australia that their customers, their employers are advertising in a very traditional way. Um, they're paying them $10,000 a year to post a thousand ads, you know, or whatever it might be. But yeah. that job board isn't driving as many candidates to those jobs as the employers would like. So that job board will send us those jobs and will drive more candidates to those job mm -hmm. ads, that Australian job board will pay us per click. So the employers still get to buy their ads the way that they're used to, traditional duration basis, and that 
Australian job board still gets to work with those employers the way that it's used to. But behind the scenes, the way that a lot of the candidates are driven to the ads is through cost per click. Now, that's in in and of itself, to me, that's interesting and that's challenging. Couple that, though, with now we're dealing with international borders and hundreds of different currencies and languages. Right. Now, all of a sudden, you've got an Australian employer maybe paying a a British-owned Australian job board in Australian dollars. That British-owned Australian job board wants to pay us in British pounds sterling. And our site <laughs> is built on U.S. dollars in the background. Everything's kind of converted right. into like a standard number, and that number just happens to be U.S. dollars. There's no magic to it other than the fact that we're headquartered in the U.S. So all of that conversion needs to happen, and it needs to happen in real time. And we need to make sure that as the currencies fluctuate, that we aren't, um, let's say, you know, um, doing the full Monty. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, it's, exactly. it's intellectually really interesting. And the journey that we're on is really similar to what some of the biggest sites in the world, like, like the Indeeds of the world mm-hmm. are, are doing. Um, Indeed's a partner of ours. And it's, it's really, okay. uh, it's been really rewarding to, to work with them because they're, they've been incredibly great partners in sharing with us some of the wisdom that they've acquired. And what's been fun is that we've acquired some wisdom that they hadn't, that we've experienced some things in some mm. of these markets, and we've been able to share that with them. And we have kind of this rising tide lifts all ships approach. If we can make our partners stronger, that makes the partnership stronger, that makes us stronger. And, you know, sure, can some partner take some of that knowledge and go and use it and, you know, maybe hurt us some at some point down the line? Yeah. But, you know, we have to cross that intersection. Is, is the light green? Did we look both ways? Did we minimize our risk? Is the, is the, is the risk worth the reward? And then you cross the intersection. So that's that's what yeah. uh, that's what we're working on. So when when we're kind of finished with this next phase, which should be by the beginning of next year, we will likely be the first niche job board in the world to be global, um, where our customers can buy and sell traffic, candidate traffic, in every major currency. That's fantastic. Who knew that a job board could be so complicated? Yeah, it's uh, it's not your it's, it's like, not your father's Oldsmobile, outside. is it? <laughs> no, exactly. And it's yeah. I I remember early in my career working as a job developer for a place called the Job Shop. Mm. So like you started with, you know, we had paper based jobs and people had to come in and look at the board, and then we helped candidates. And that was how my that was one of my first professional jobs at a university was was working for the job shop in Prince George. And uh, I learned a lot through that process, but um, certainly it's come a long way in yeah. the the, 25 the, years, the, right? The people who are coming through HR programs now that have um, a gift for math and really enjoy it, 
quick they mm-hmm. write their own ticket with with buying yeah. recruitment ad advertising is so much more math driven now data driven than it has ever been yeah. and the older generation uh, stereotypically you know your 50 60 year olds are they're used to buying advertising based upon what company um, advertised last year during the Super Bowl and it's a it was a beauty contest oh I've heard of them we should buy an ad there now right. it's much more about what does the data show? How do the numbers back out? Let's A, B test. So, you know, for the students who like solving puzzles, who are good at math, um, get yourself into some classes where you're talking about pay-per-click, pay-for-performance, programmatic, because that's that's going to be a golden ticket. Well, I wish you all the best with that. That sounds really exciting. Cool. Okay, so I have five speed questions I want to wrap up with that I ask all my guests at the end, and uh, we'll run through these fairly quickly. Um, The first one is always the toughest one for people. So if you could work for any organization in the world, which one would it be and why? So I'm not going to say that I would work for College Recruiter because that would be a cop-out. But what I would say (laughs) is that I couldn't imagine saying that I could only work for one other organization in the world. Uh, And so it would be a kind of organization. It would be an organization where I can have a substantial impact. I'd be looking for three things. Um, Is is the work that I would be asked to do, do do I have competency in it? Would would I be good at it? Um, Is it interesting Mm -hmm. to me? And do I value it? And and by value it, it's, you know, when I leave the, the office, whether I'm working at home, whether I'm working on site, at the end of the day, what I feel like I made the world a little bit of a better place. And if I can find all yeah. three of those things and maybe also get paid a decent amount, then that would be the organization I'd want to work for. I, I was thinking about you know, small, which college recruiter is, or really large. I've worked for one of the biggest companies in the world and I've worked for one of the smallest companies in the world and it made no difference to me. It was about my immediate team. When I worked for Honeywell in in the early, uh, late late 80s, early 90s, we had 80,000 employees. We're a Fortune 50 company. I didn't work with 80,000 people. I worked with 10. So I might have been, exactly. I might as well have been working for, in a small business. Those were the 10 people that day in, day out, I worked with. And, and you know, we, have, we would collaborate here and there with other divisions and departments, but that's the same as in a small business when you're collaborating with partners, customers, vendors. So I think the whole big, small Absolutely. thing is, especially for somebody early in their career, I, I, think it's, I think it's overblown. No, I totally agree. That's awesome. I love how values driven you are because that's so important. <laughs> I learned that from my wife. That is for darn sure. She's made me a much better person. Good. All right. Question two: What is your go-to stress-releasing Walking. activity? I um I have a dog, a, a wow. rescue that we got a few years ago, and he gives me a look in the morning, or I give him a look in the morning, and. <laughs> There we go. And so um, virtually every day, and I live in Minneapolis, so our weathers are 
interesting. Uh, our winters are interesting. Um, yeah. But uh, 365 days a year, I bet you we, we go for a two and a half mile walk on probably 362 of them. They're like three days out of the year where That's it's awesome. pretty much death to go more than about 10 feet outside the door. So those ones, he'll look at right. me or I'll look at him and we'll say, pass. What's the dog's uh, name? Oh, so given that it's a Canadian podcast, you'll understand this. My American friends just kind of give me blank stares. His name is Macintosh. She's named after the Macintosh toffee oh. that you find in Canada. When we used to, t- to go up to uh, West Hawk Lake, which is where my parents had a cabin a couple of uh, hours east of Winnipeg, one of the first things that we would get as yeah. we crossed the border were Slurpees because you couldn't get them in Minnesota because we were yeah. kind of backward. And we would also get Macintosh toffee bars. So when we got, it's yeah, when we, yeah, the, and, and the old style ones that are sort of rectangular and you have to smash them on the hood of your car yep. and um, those, that's so yep. when we were looking to get a dog and we were trying to think of a dog's name, my wife and I happened to be um, at West Hawk uh, Lake and we went into this little grocery store and they had all the chocolate bars there and there was the Macintosh yeah. toffee. So before we even got him, we had his name. Oh, yeah. I love it. I love it. They they still sell it everywhere. I was just at Harrison Hot Springs and went into a corner store and right at the front where the cashier was, there was Macintosh. Well, toffee. I was, uh, we spent about a month in Quebec City last fall and Let's just say that oh, there was a shortage yeah. of Macintosh toffee by the time we left. <laughs> okay, here's here's one that uh, I, sometimes people struggle with. But if you could go back to the day you graduated mm-hmm. from university, college, mm-hmm. or high school, what advice would you give your younger self? The advice that I would give my younger self would be to be more values-driven. And we, we touched on that a couple mm. minutes ago. I, I think I am very much that way now, but I was not right. that way when I was in my early 20s. When I was in my early 20s, mm-hmm. I was much more money motivated. Um, and it's not like I've made a pile of money or anything like that. And it's like, oh, well, it's easy to say you're value driven when you're super rich. It's like, I'm not. Um, but it's it's not something that I felt like I grew up enough with trying to make the world a better Mm. place. And um, I learned a lot from from members of, of my family. You look around and you see who are the happiest people in life. And they are the people who spend their lives making everybody else happier. And I always say, if you, if you find, you know, a a career path or even even a job for now that is aligned with your values, usually the money side comes, yeah. right? It's it's so important to your mental health and your physical health to be kind of doing something that you enjoy that, you know, makes you feel good mm-hmm. about yourself. Uh, coffee oh, or coffee. tea? Don't even get, don't even get me started. Okay, good. <laughs> it's like it's like a big part of my life coffee <laughs> which people that listen to this regularly know very well <laughs> i actually tried to stop drinking no. coffee once and it was devastating for everybody i know I mean, it's it like crazy, it's but, did, you, uh, did you stop using air also i mean <laughs> that's kind of how it felt to me 
Uh, last question. Which book or film has had the biggest impact on you as a person or a professional? Uh, so this is going to be the business owner's answer uh, to that question. And I apologize for ending on a boring note. Um, but about no, four or five years ago, um, my wife, who's our CEO, learned about something called um, the Entrepreneur's Operating System, EOS. is what, um, And there's a book called Traction get a grip on your business. The author is Gino Wickman. Oh, yes. And for those of your listeners who are going to go into a small business, this is a fantastic book to bring to the leadership team. It's unlikely that you'll be a member of mm -hmm. that leadership team on day one, but maybe after a few years. But essentially what it does is it's a whole framework and checklists. It's incredibly practical, every page, every paragraph about how to run a business with clarity and accountability. And at the end of the day, what I think is the most dysfunctional about most businesses, and I think most businesses are dysfunctional, is that people don't know what they're supposed to do. And it's not that mm. your boss is trying to make you fail. It's that the conversations are just usually not explicit enough. So what EOS does is it, it just, it gets everybody to focus on what matters most and to be really clear about that. Our work environment, we've had people come into the company that have worked in other places and every single person that, that stays with us uh, will say, this is the most wonderful workplace that I've ever worked in because we're all rowing in the same direction. Everybody knows what the goals are. Mm -hmm. We're all working toward those goals and we all understand how our work fits into that picture. I'm not doing something that I think is useless. Right. It might be pretty small, but I see how it fits in. We have had people that have quit or that we've fired because they cannot be clear and they refuse to be accountable or hold others accountable. And that's okay. Let, right. let them go someplace else. There'll be a better place for them. I have heard of that book and I'm trying to remember where I heard about it. I think it was on a different podcast, but I did take a look at it when I started my company. Yeah. And it, it looks it's, fascinating. Yeah. So that's, you know, most, most business books should be pamphlets. You know, you, you spend $15 yeah. and you read 400 pages and there are like three bullet points that come out of it. And you're just left feeling <laughs> like angry. Like I just spent you know, yeah. a day, three days, whatever, reading that to get these three ideas, come on. And, and you just feel ripped off. Right. This book, you're left, want, you're left wanting more. And it's not like it's a great, you know, you know, murder mystery whodunit. Oh, I figured out it was the butler with a hammer on, you know, whatever. It, it's just, it's a very practical nuts and bolts book for small businesses. If you're going to work for a Fortune 500, forget it. It, it doesn't scale. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely put a put a link to that yeah. book in the show notes so listeners can find it because I, I think it would be 
really valuable. Um, as you say, if someone's working for a small business or considering starting their own, you know, yeah. it'd be awesome. Good. Well, Stephen, I really want to thank you for your time. Uh, this was a great conversation. I think we could have kept talking for another hour. Um, at least I thought of about another 10 questions <laughs> for you. So <laughs> we might have to do it again someday, but uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your experience and your knowledge with my listeners. I would be listeners. thrilled to, to, uh, to help out again, Melanie. Just let me know when and where, and uh, I can be paid in Macintosh toffee. <laughs> oh, perfect. Done. <laughs> well, you take care and, and thank you so My much pleasure. for being here. Thank you much. What a fun conversation. I have to say, Stephen was a joy to talk to. And if the energy he brings to the job board is half the energy he brings to a podcast, all his job seekers are in great hands. If you want to learn more about Stephen and check out a short summary of this episode, you can find both wherever you are listening. And if you're frustrated with your job search and want a little extra help, be sure to consider my upcoming HR Career Accelerator program. Write down this special discount code, HRMentorPod, all one word, and get signed up for my newsletter so you're the first to know when registration opens. Anyone who registers with that discount code will get a special rate for this program. You can sign up for the newsletter using the links wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you are a member of the HR Mentor Fan Club, you'll receive a further discount on your registration. If you're not already a member, make sure you sign up today. The HR Mentor Fan Club is a virtual space where you can get access to special bonus episodes of the podcast, resources, and free downloads, as well as a chance to access special discounts on future programs, like the HR Career Accelerator. You can find the link in the show notes for this episode at www.thehrmentor.podbean.com, as well as a link to related episodes and the sign-up page for the fan club membership site and the newsletter. And if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, click the button wherever you're listening and send me your questions or a little bit of love with a message on LinkedIn or through a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I just might read it on a future episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Your time is greatly appreciated. Take care. Bye for now.